am Will McHenry, the Program Associate at Ponars Eurasia, and with us today is Harris Malonis, an Associate Professor of Political Science at George Washington University. Harris, thank you so much for joining me for this Ponars podcast. What are de facto states? What challenges do they pose to the international system? Yeah, so de facto states uh, are uh, a little hard to define because they uh, overlap with some other categories in the minds of many people. So there are about 193 odd states in the world, but um, the sovereignty in some of these states is contested. Uh, It's not only contested by de facto states, which we're going to define in a minute, but they're also challenged by uh, sometimes anti-regime guerrillas or stateless nationalist movements that... um, uh, are different from de facto states in the sense that uh, de facto states uh, control territory. Um, so uh, they actually have a lot of uh, um, uh, sovereignty on the ground, unlike most stateless nationalist movements, which are aspiring to statehood. Uh, at the same time, um, de facto states are not anti-regime guerrillas because they seek self-determination rather than just change the regime at the capital of a country. So um, they're different from other challenges. Um, They also uh, violate uh, the principle of territorial integrity, of course, and that's how most international relations scholars get interested in de facto states. It's because uh, they obviously uh, uh, are entities who uh, want to modify the borders of the contemporary state system. So in that sense, uh, the international system is often unsettled by such cases that emerge uh, every now and then. And of course, these can become source of interstate war and definitely involve intrastate war, right? Civil wars, because uh, very rarely these de facto states are the product of uh, peaceful uh, situations. Are all de facto states alike? Well, um, <clears throat> well, they're alike in terms of structural um, uh, I guess, characteristics that help us define them and code them, but of course they're not alike when it comes to real real world uh, on the ground kind of facts. Um, We could say there is a range of de facto statehood um, and definitely some de facto states have more agency than others. Uh, Just to fix ideas, I'll give some examples. Um, We can say that uh, Turkey practically built a de facto state in the north part of uh, the island of Cyprus following the 1974 invasion, but it hasn't always controlled fully the internal dynamics in that part. Uh, While uh, we can say the same, uh, for example, about the recent um, relationship between Russia and Abkhazia and South Ossetia, it seems that Russia has a much stronger hold uh, and uh, say, uh, again, uh, these are all relative notions. Of course, there is no absolute uh, control by an external patron of a de facto state. Um, most de facto states, we should say, uh, exist uh, because they have some strong external backing. Not all of them, but the majority, we could point to uh, an external patron being involved at either the beginning, in the emerging, uh, the emerging stage, or later on. Um, and that's another important characteristic feature of de facto states. Um, so. In that sense, we could say that um, uh, there is important variation uh, in terms of the agency they have and um, in terms of the relationship 
they have with their Excel patron. Um, similarly, we can draw a distinction, another distinction based on uh, whether um, the external patron is a kin state or a purported kin state or not, whether the external patron is contiguous or not, and so on and so forth. We could, we could parse this out in multiple ways, and that could create different categories of de facto states if we would like to think about them like that, yeah. Did you find any interesting patterns while writing your policy memos on de facto states? Yeah, um, so uh, when I started looking more closely to the, uh, at the cases, um, it, it, there is some important work on, uh, on this topic, um, and uh, many people, um, Costo, Berg, um, Florea, uh, Coggins, um, a lot of scholars have, have dealt with this problem, and many more I'm not mentioning right now. Uh, but um, what I was finding uh, fascinating from my geopolitical perspective was that um, most de facto states that were uh, that emerged in the Cold War, and I have made some maps to depict that, um, none of them, not surprisingly from anyone who knows history, but none of them... Um, um, emerged in NATO uh, or within NATO members or within Warsaw Pact members. And uh, the explanation is obvious for people who study um, these topics, but um, a bipolar system was, my conclusion was that in a bipolar system where the two poles, the hegemons of each pole are really trying to keep uh, uh, their their things in order and uh, run a tight uh, show <laughs> um, won't let any of these things you know survive and we see that the facto states only emerge in mainly in Africa basically sub-Saharan Africa and um, some in East Asia um, but we don't see um, any de facto states uh, at all in uh, the two poles within the two poles similarly Another interesting pattern, if we uh, look at um, the whole period, uh, we see no de facto states in the Americas. North and South America have no de facto states based on the criteria we're using to code de facto states. Um, and then, of course, in the post-Cold War, we see that there are, there are de facto states suddenly um, in uh, all of Eastern Europe and, uh, and, of course, the former Soviet Union. And that's not surprising once you go into the geopolitics of this, obviously, and you've started with this hypothesis of Cold War versus post-Cold War. Yes, the losing side of the Cold War um, is vulnerable after 1990, and there is a, a, you know, a large number of de facto states that emerge. Now, mo many of them disappear. Many of them don't survive, but uh, a few of them linger and still survive to this day. Uh, the other last pattern we see is that the Middle East increasingly um, is featuring, uh, it's featured in these maps as uh, an area where de facto states um, become more prominent. Um, so again, it seems that from a geopolitical perspective, um, the conclusion I'm drawing is that the, the patterns uh, would be um, is more easily explained if we look at the international system at its point in time and then usually we would find such entities emerging in the areas uh, in the periphery of uh, of the system 
or in the vulnerable sides uh, of the system, um, usually, of course, um, as a result of rivalry and great politics, uh, great power politics competition. Yeah. Yeah. To follow up on that, do you draw any conclusions for the future of de facto states? Yeah. Um, well, as I said, a lot will depend on the structure of the international system. And of course, um, the structure of the international system is not independent of the preferences of the actors of the international system. So um, depending on, uh, for example, um, the future behavior and preferences of the United States of America and Russia, um, we may see uh, more or less um, room for such entities to emerge. And what I'm implying by that is um, the US and Russia have been both in favor of territorial integrity in some cases, and they've backed self-determination cases, uh, self-determination movements in other cases. So um, easily if somebody uh, thinks about the role the US played in Kosovo, and then, you know, at the same time, we think about the role that Russia played in South Ossetia and Abkhazia, or even the role that Russia played in Crimea, which is a different role than the one in South Ossetia and Abkhazia. And I do go into the memo, into the calculus of a great power like Russia, um, deciding whether to annex a territory or whether to leave it as a de facto state, which I think is a complicated uh, equation, especially for uh, a contiguous external patron. Um, so based on those uh, behaviors, we can't be um, very optimistic that, you know, things will, uh, will be quiet because both the US and Russia have been playing this game. Um, but what I'm ending my uh, policy memo with is pondering um, and wondering what would China do in the future as a future hegemonic or um, rising power? Um, would it still would it remain a champion of territorial integrity as it as it pretends to be or at least uh, claims to be? Let's say today, um, with um, uh, its uh, emphasis on um, borders as they are and so on and so forth. Uh, and and of course we know why it's doing that because of its own internal problems with some restive uh, minorities, um, or would um, China's assertiveness uh, coming at uh, you know ascendance let's say, will its uh, ascendance uh, encourage China to uh, assume the role of an external patron as the U.S. has done in the past or and Russia has done in the past or the Soviet Union, and play that game as it's rising in the international system um, in order to destabilize rival states or for whatever purposes. So a lot, I think, about the future of this phenomenon will depend on um, the, the preference structure of these hegemonic states and the relationship between those states that will then, of course, form what we call the international system at the time, because um, these relationships and these preferences are um, obviously interrelated and uh, they they inform each other so um, we'll, we'll see um, so the future could be a future of um, uh, a new bipolar system with China being a new pole or it could be a decentralized system of spheres of influence where different big powers or major powers um, are responsible for different parts of the world and that would mean that the standards for these issues 
the situation for de facto states will be different in each of these regions, right? So yeah. when I talk about the international system, it doesn't mean that there will be one um, standard for the whole world as you know we know it. It could, the future could hold uh, or could mean um, a system of decentralized kind of um, uh, subsystems or regional systems where different standards um, are enforced. Um, so it, we need to um, be vigilant and, uh, and write another memo when the time comes. <laughs> Harris, fascinating. Thank you so much for joining me for this Ponars podcast. Thank you uh, for having me and uh, good luck with